Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, repping kids' books from picture books through YA. On this podcast, my guests and I chat about all things kidlit publishing. Today, I'm excited to be joined by a powerhouse editor and the founder and publisher of Kokula Books, a division of Penguin Random House, Namrata Tripathi. Let me see if I can get her on the line. Hi, Namrata. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I know um, I'm going to get right into this because we have so much to cover. I know a lot of listeners think of a publisher as like a big building, probably in New York City, that makes books. Mm-hmm. But it's also a person. You're a publisher. And you have your very own imprint at Penguin, Kokula Books. We're going to talk a lot more about it. But first, can you tell us a bit about your career path? Sure. Um, so I uh, studied English literature in uh, university. And after that, I thought what I'm really good at is critiquing other people's writing. And I didn't really know um, what kind of job I could get with that. But um, as I learned about publishing, which is a funny thing because I love books, but I never really paused to think about where books come from. It wasn't something that I really grew up knowing a lot about this industry. But once I learned that it was an industry that existed, I... Um, I uh, took the Columbia Publishing course, which I had the great, you know, big privilege of being able to attend. I already lived in New York City, so I could live at home and come to it and uh, afford to do that, which was um, kind of a great way to learn some things. But also, as we as we know, a lot of these courses are basically a way of being able to network and have access to a lot of the gatekeepers, and and it definitely afforded me that opportunity. And when I was at the course, I heard a lot of people from children's literature speak, and they were so passionate and committed to that work that I thought, maybe this is what I want to do. I thought initially that I'd want to do adult books because that's what I'd been reading. And I didn't really think about children's literature because I felt like maybe I needed to be a parent or a teacher or have some other qualification beyond the love of story and understanding um, sort of a a kid's point of view in in storytelling. Um, But they really convinced me that this was where I wanted to be. And so I started applying for jobs. And one of the big hurdles for me is, um, you know, I was, uh, I'm an immigrant. I was a, an Indian citizen. I became American last year, but this is, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. So 18 years ago, um, when I was applying for jobs, a lot of places wouldn't sponsor uh, an editorial assistant for an H-1B visa. So that was a big struggle. So when I applied for gigs, a lot of people didn't even want to see me for interviews, but luckily a few did. And so that's how I began. I got my first job at HarperCollins um, as an ed- editorial assistant, and I worked in um, mass market books. And so, you know, sort of lower price point, um, TV and movie tie-ins, media tie-ins, um, sort of classic properties. And that was great because I got a chance to learn about a lot of different formats, um, learn how to navigate a lot of different kinds of relationships, and um, just you know, get to work in a fast-paced environment where you where you do a lot of um, learning on the job. And mm. so that was great. But I think uh, as I started progressing further along and started to know my own sensibility, I realized that probably what I wanted to do was not focused in the mass market. And so I was lucky my next job, I went to um, Hyperion. And I was there when I was starting to build my own list, so starting as an associate editor, editor, um, and senior editor. And then I went to SNS. I was at Athenaeum, where I kind of built a more um, a list that I think I kind of start to get to know, be known for a little bit more, maybe on the literary side, um, with some more diverse storytelling. And um, I was there when I was executive editor for about five years. And then um, five years ago, I came to Penguin, 
where I came over as the editorial director at Dial Books for Young Readers. And then I became associate publisher there. And then about a year ago, um, I started Coquila. So it's been sort of a funny meandering, a little bit of a journey. But I think what I feel really lucky about is that I, I felt like every new job that came was an opportunity for me to move towards something that kind of got me closer to what my skill set and sensibility would be rather than feeling like I was running away from something. So it was in that way a really lucky path. Well, it sounds like you've been just about everywhere. <laughs> Which is good. I mean, you know, that's how you are able to have the uh, amazingness that you have now. So you started Kokula a year ago. What was the genesis of the imprint? Yeah, so Kokula, um, you know, I usually say it came from a place of optimism and rage, uh, because I think that's the most honest way that I can talk about it, both professionally and personally. Um, and I think it was about just realizing um one feeling sort of grateful and optimistic about the more robust conversations we're having about inclusion um, and diversity and, and representation in children's literature, but also feeling like in some ways we kind of stalled out at really um, elementary conversations, really basic conversations where we, we should be doing more. And, and then I kind of thought about what what more could I be doing? How could I contribute to this in a more meaningful way? And And sort of personally thinking, you know, at this stage in my career, what is the thing I want next? How can I do my best work? I think that's what everyone wants in their job. And and I couldn't quite see that existing for me. And so thinking about um, how when we talked about diversity in books, and usually we talk about diversity on the page, in the creators, and in the gatekeepers, and not and, and I hadn't seen any house doing all three holistically together. Mm -hmm. Then I thought, well, maybe my opportunity is to create this. And so the way that I'm going to get the job I want is to like invent that job, um, convince Penguin to create the job and then give me the job that I just invented. And and that's how I got this gig. So that's kind of where it came from. Nice. Um, has the mission changed at all now that you actually have books out in the world? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, I think initially when we went in, our mission was really um, to hit a couple of different things simultaneously and to try to keep them in front of mind as we did our work. So one was, like I said, um, thinking about representation on the page, which a lot of people are doing and I'm so grateful for, thinking about representation in the creators but not pigeonholing uh, authors in a way that sometimes if we misinterpret what own voices can mean, that, that can do. Um, and then also creating a staff where everyone who touches a book is deeply invested in and knowledgeable about cross-cultural editing, or at least taking it upon themselves to close the gap in their knowledge because it's our responsibility to do so. So um, that very much remains. And I think with the mission, we usually say, you know, our, our, our mission statement is twofold. One part is about centering stories from the margins, and the other is really about letting creators express the full range of their experiences. And that, I think, very much remains. Every day when we kind of have meetings at Kokila, we usually talk about are we still moving toward the mountain or have we accidentally turned away from it? Um, and so I think for us right now, it's not so much about redefining the mission, but knowing that we're always recommitting ourselves to it in a really thoughtful and intentional way. For those uh, listeners who don't know, uh, Kokila is a kind of bird. Yes. Which I'm obsessed with your logo and also the way <laughs> it integrates with the whole puffin penguin yes. bird situation you've got going on over there. 
How long did it take you to come up with this concept? Like, did you wake up at, in the morning and say, it's going to be a Coca-Cola? Right. I <laughs> I wish I could have just woken up because it w- and said that because it would have saved me so many hours and days and weeks and months maybe of agony. Um, yeah, it's funny because I had such a particular clear vision about um, what I wanted this imprint to be, but I had so much... Um, I struggled so much to figure out what one word could somehow embody all of those things. It just felt like an enormous task to be able to define. And I actually spent a lot of time coming up with tons of really bad imprint names and bad ideas. <laughs> I really had to get them out of my system. I talked to naming experts to think about what are the sorts of concerns one should have when naming uh, uh, an organization or a company. Um, and and actually, one of the things that uh, was really um, uh, an important sort of inflection point in, in figuring out the name was I had a conversation with Stacey Barney, who's an editor at Putnam and a friend. And I found I was telling her, you know, I was thinking about names and I was like, I, I know I don't want it to be centered in Western to- storytelling. That that seems quite clear and important to me um, because we're talking about centering a different kind of voice. But uh, maybe I'll pick something that's like sort of mathematical or sort of scientific because that'll somehow be universal and not too Indian. And she was like, wait, wait, what? And, and pointed out, she's like, I want to make this observation that you're kind of erasing yourself from the process. And that's a, that's a, an act that's a very woman thing to do and a very person of color thing to do. And it was so on point. And I had, it was really important for me to hear that even as I was trying to do this work, uh, to address exactly the ways in which some some people are excluded from certain spaces. I was doing it to myself because it's so deeply ingrained. And so that was a good point where she said, sort of said, let yourself be a part of this, you know? And so then I thought, let me look at things closer to home. And because Penguin has such a, an obsession with <laughs> bird names, we have so many of them with Puffin and Razorbill and Philomel. I thought, what are the birds in my in my culture? And so I looked at the. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! What? Philomel is a bird. Yeah, yeah. Philomel is a bird. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, go on. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think it's I think it's like a nightingale, maybe. Um, but Philomel Damn. is a bird. Yeah. Um, and so I um thought about birds that are significant in my culture and in in a lot of Indian poetry and uh you know mythology storytelling. The coil, which is sort of the Indian cuckoo bird, um is often evoked uh, as um, in these in these works because it sings before the monsoon comes. And so in that way, it's recognized as like a harbinger of new beginnings. So that seemed to me to be quite a perfect name. And then Kokila is a Sanskrit name for the coil bird. And I just loved that because it, um, I think it's fun to say. And also because Sanskrit has influenced so many languages and cultures it was a way of reminding me every time we would look at our name that this is all about idea and linguistic exchange. So once we had the name, then I went to our art director, Jasmine Rubero, who designed the incredible logo. And that too was its own iterative process where she came up with uh, images that were very graphic and then things that were realistic and things that were whimsical and things that were serious. And mostly we would be like, that's too graphic and that's too realistic and that's too whimsical and that's too serious. And she was about ready to murder us. <laughs> but eventually, you know, she just immersed herself in both learning about the bird, its environment, all of these kinds of things, and also in logo design, which is a whole other job. And I feel like in Jasmine's development of this 
um, of our logo. And also she did a beautiful animation where we revealed the logo. She kind of just, she took her skills to a whole other level. And I felt like she was embodying the thing that we had hoped we could do when we all came together to create this imprint, which is to say, how do you create an environment where all of us and all of the creators who work with us might do something better than they thought they like more than they even thought they were capable of. You know, how do you get to your best self? How do we create an environment where we could do that? And here she was fully demonstrating it to us. So it was really inspiring for me to see the work that she did. Um, yeah, it's genius. And I will link to the in the show notes the logo animation and, and the post. I think there was a great post. That's right. When it was revealed. Yeah. I think the Adobe blog did a whole interview with Jazz about the process. It was really, really awesome. Have there been any surprises in launching Cocula? I mean, that could be good, bad, or just unusual, surprising. I mean, I guess in some way, you know, I've never launched an imprint before, so everything is new. So maybe everything is a surprise. I I don't know. I think one of the things I found to be very true, um, which I hadn't necessarily predicted, but someone did tell me would be the case, uh, is that the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Um, so I think that's been that's been something I sort of contended with sort of personally and professionally. The other thing that might be a bit of a surprise is I think I'd known it when we were forming the imprint, but didn't recognize how the time split would work out where I think most people look at our... Um, output like the books as the main work. And I think for us at the imprint, the product is of course super important, but the process is so very important and is so critical to our identity, how the books become the books that they are, but also how we influence and change culture within the company and hopefully within the industry because of the kinds of dialogues that we're creating. And so I think one of the big surprises has been that in creating the imprint, a lot of the work we do is completely invisible to not just the consumer, but maybe even to all of my own colleagues. So I think that's one of the things that has been a big surprise is like, you know, you might see like these five books, but to me, there's all of, it's like, it's like the, the, um, iceberg, like everything that is submerged is really where all of the stability and foundation of this thing comes from. And it's completely hidden. And that's been really interesting to contend with. Well, and speaking of the output, the first book to come out of the imprint was The Night Diary yeah, by Vera Herrnandani, and it was a Caldecott honor book. It was a Newbery honor, yeah. <laughs> oh, Newbery, sorry. Yeah. Um, so that's starting out with a bang. How did winning a Newbery honor feel for a baby imprint? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I, I think I still may not have fully processed what, what a great gift Vera has given to Kokila in that way. I mean, we were all just so excited for her and that work. And then also, you know, I had to tell her right away that beyond how excited I was as an editor, how proud I am for her, what a great accomplishment um, it is to see another South Asian win this. Uh, she's the only, I think, the second South Asian to win win the award or to have any sort of Newberry recognition um, that it, it means a lot to Kokila because it helps us go out into the world with a real calling card and helps, I think, all of our authors are not just um, telling our story. They're kind of writing the story of Kokila as we begin as a baby imprint, you know, and I feel like for this to be the first big story was remarkable. It was really, really great. 
And as of literally this week, when this podcast is airing, mm-hmm. you have a couple of new picture books out yes. and more books on the horizon later in summer and fall. And I actually saw that um, one of your books is in the New York Times this weekend. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, the, that book is My Puppy Has a Motorcycle that's written by Isabel Quintero and illustrated by Zeke Pena. And it's just a, it's an incredibly beautiful picture book that Isabel wrote kind of as a love letter both to her dad and also to the town of Corona in California where she grew up. Um, and it tells a simple story of like a dad coming home from work and taking his daughter for a ride on his motorcycle. But as they ride through the neighborhood, they see the ways in which the neighborhood is changing. And it, it kind of really subtly in a slice of life way acknowledges um, how immigrants built a lot of American cities, how um, gentrification is a part of um, the story of our cities now and what that means for the communities who built those cities. Um, and also that moment of being a kid and recognizing like everything around you changes and how terrifying that can be. But if you're lucky, the constant in your life is maybe the love of your family, which is the case for the main character, Daisy Ramona. So it's really beautiful. And Zeke is a, an awesome um, ar- artist and he's comes from a comics background. So he just brings us really cool sort of panels and um, ways of playing with the picture book form um, that uh, just brings the book to life. And I'm really, really excited about it. And we published that in in English and Spanish simultaneously. Um, and that's coming out, yeah, on the 14th of, of uh, May. And then the sec- the other book on that same day is Hair Love, which is by um, Matthew A. Cherry and illustrated by Vashti Harrison. And that is a book that um, I think all the Coquilla books we try to have, like there's like the surface pitch and then there's all the things that are underneath. So on the surface, it's like a book about a black dad doing his daughter's hair. And it's about celebrating natural hair and self-expression and um, just a, a beautiful family and fathers and daughters. Um, and also an opportunity to show uh, a, a young black family with just a lot of love and joy on the page because showing joy in books is also sometimes its own radical act. How do you strategize when you're building a list totally from scratch? Like, are you trying to make sure you have something for every category? Are you trying to like, how do you manage being both small boutique style and also wanting to fill these big holes in the marketplace? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think the way we're approaching it is that I hope that in the aggregate, there will be a balance on the list because we're thinking about um, how varied and interesting our world is. But on every individual list, it's not like we're going to be like, oh, this list has, you know, 33% of this thing, 12% that thing. There's no formula for each individual list to be perfectly balanced. Um, I think we're probably approaching acquisitions as any editor does at any house, which is that you do the books that um, move you in some way that you feel you particularly could contribute to in a way that perhaps no other editor could, because I think that is where some magic happens. And also I hope that we will continue to kind of follow our curiosity. And I hope that that will keep evolving over time. And so probably the nature of the list will keep changing. I mean, in some ways I think about, you know, I want to be really intentional about how do I define success? And each book 
serves a different purpose. So there's some books I'm going to be like, all right, every now and then I'm going to need a book that goes out big and I'm looking at the times list because that's one of those metrics that seems to be important in our industry. And of course, you know, and, and certainly it is, though it is, um, uh, not as transparent and, 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 um, you know, uh, what can I say? I was like, it's not without flaws. Yeah, not without <laughs> flaws, right? It's it's like it's, it's it's not the pure thing that we sometimes think it is when you're first coming up, right? But um, so there might be some things where I'm like, okay, what I'm going for is the list, and then there's some books where I'm going to be like, this is a book that I just want like every kid to read. It may not have this critical acclaim, but it's going to be, it's it's filling a need that like families are waiting for. And then there might be another book that's like this has a much smaller reach, possibly. It needs to exist, and and so I'm going to take a risk on this book because I I need to see this book in the world, and and then some. Then I'm going to be like, I need this for critical acclaim, and sometimes it's going to be like, I need this big author because it brings a certain attention to the imprint that helps uplift all of the newer voices as well. So I think I'm thinking about all of those things all the time, recognizing that not every list will do all of those, um, we hit all of those points. But again, in in the in the aggregate, I hope I hope we will. Coca-Cola is going to be open to unsolicited, unagented submissions for a window, which makes it pretty unusual for a major publisher and very exciting for writers, I'm sure. And I'll link to rules for that submission period on your website. But can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we think a lot about um, access in the industry and um, hurdles to access, right? And we thought that... um, getting an agent is often a really um, a huge barrier to entry uh, for a lot of writers. And so we wanted to have a, a, a submissions period each each year. I think it's between September and December is what we've done so far. We're going to try it out for you know as we go and see what process works best, where unagented authors can submit as long as it's sort of within our mission statement. And then we read each submission and take the rest of the year to get back to all of the folks who wrote to us. Um, and it's great. I mean, some things, uh, you know, might be right on board for us. Some things might not quite hit the mark, but we'll figure it out as we go to figure out what the what the best um, refined process will be. But so far, um, it feels really important to be able to have sort of a direct line of communication with creators uh, around the country and around the world. So we're, we're really excited to be able to do this. What is it that you're seeking in your inbox? And also, conversely, what do you not want to read? Yeah, that's... That's a great question. I, I feel like I always wish that I had a better answer that was like, here are the three things I want right now. But like <laughs> mostly, I think the thing I'm seeking is, you know, that thing we talk about, it's like, what makes you buy a book? And it's like, some people say, I, I know it when I see it. And I feel like the, the most honest thing I can say is, I know it when I feel it. And, you know, you spend a lot of time cultivating your gut and your instincts and then learning to listen and and build the sort of pathway between your mind and your gut um, as an editor. And I think like I finally trust myself in that. And so uh, I'm just looking for something that makes me feel alive and engaged with the world, that makes me learn something totally new and makes me want to push harder to know more about it. Um, Really, it's about engaging with people's minds that um, are just sort of um, irresistible because they're, you know, so curious or so 
compassionate in their writing or whatever it is, something that just makes you follow that person. So I think like that the thing is like, I know what I see it, but if I am looking for a thing like right now in this very moment, I think I desperately just need some great romance. Like in my life, I just want like a beautiful rom-com with like just, yeah, I don't know. It's like the folks that we don't see in the rom-coms all the time. I want that start to finish. I just want to live in like a giddy, you know, I feel queasy all the time walking by his locker kind of love story. That's where I want to be. Um, so there's, there's that. And then when I think about what we don't want, um, I mean, I think, I think sometimes because people will kind of shorthand what we're doing as like a diversity imprint, which is fine, but I think it's a way that sometimes lets you be lazy about what that really means. If you just, you know, just say it's a diversity imprint. Um, when I get the submissions that don't really understand what we're trying to do and how we're trying to question, um, uh, well, I guess everything that we do in, in that, you know, who is this book for? What point of view is it coming from? Who are you writing to? Uh, what is the default? All of that kind of stuff. And so I think sometimes I see books that are very well-intentioned, but maybe are, that feel kind of performative. And that feels um, like something I don't really want to do. There are books that I can tell are, um, and there's a place for them, but I don't think I'm as interested personally in these books where maybe it's a story about someone from a marginalized background um, and their story is really there for the edification of a white audience or a, you know, an able audience, if it's a disabled character or a, you know, cis audience, if it's a trans character, that kind of thing where, you know, you're, you're writing for this other audience in a way that is, um, I don't know, can sometimes become sort of accidentally tropey. Um, so I think that the, the performative nature and the kind of centering of the white gaze is something that pretty quickly turns me off. Um, can you give any examples of like, a manuscript where you read it and you were like, this. The Night Diary, I think, is a really good example because um, it was one of the few books where I could tell the agent, like, look, you could send this to other people if you wish. But my, I would contend that I think I may be the single best suited editor for this particular work. And that's, I mean, that that's not going to happen all the time. That happens very, very rarely, in fact. But it was really powerful to be able to say that because here, Vera, I loved her voice. It kind of terrified me because it made me, there was a part of it that was so melancholy because I think, you know, it's about a, a daughter writing to her mom these letters in a in like a diary, but her mom had died in childbirth. And I think part of me was reading it as a parent. And that scared me a little because I thought, oh, maybe I'm coming at this with my adult mind. But the point was I was so emotionally invested and I just didn't want to admit that because it kind of hurt to read it almost, you know? Um, and she dealt with all of these um, questions of duality and hybridity, which are endlessly fascinating to me and just kind of the place in which I constantly live. Um, she came from a background that had uh, multiple identities, you know, where she, the main character is Hindu and Muslim. Vera herself is Hindu and Jewish. I come from a Hindu and Sikh family. They, and then there's a personal resonance and it was a story of partition and her family, you know, her dad had made that journey and members of my family had also made the journey from Pakistan to India during partition. And so there was just so many moments of connection. Um, but that's very specific because I feel like it's good. You know, it's not like I don't, I'm only going to connect with the books that somehow resonate with my life personally. And then I think like when Isabel sent um, 
my puppy has a motorcycle. It's not my story at all, but I love the way in which I could feel that there was there was a lot more going on under the surface that hadn't been excavated yet. And I just wanted to talk to Isabel about it. And when we spoke, I could tell that there was going to be a really magical book that was going to emerge from all the thinking she'd been doing. How does the acquisitions process work at Kokola? So the acquisitions process at Penguin is um, uh, such that we don't have an acquisitions board like uh, many other houses do, including many of the houses I worked at where you like put together your whole, you know, PL and your pitch and all of that. And then you share it with sales and marketing and everyone around the company and sort of convince them that you want to buy this book. Instead here, the president of the company really trusts each publisher to build their own list and uh, to trust their own sensibility. So basically we read a thing and if we love the thing, we say, how do we make it such that um, we could publish it here? How do we make the case for that? And um, and so we just kind of talk amongst ourselves with our team. It's me, um, Joanna Cardenas, our incredible editor, um, Sydney Monday, editorial assistant, who consistently brings just great questions to every meeting. And then um, Jasmine Rivera, who I mentioned, who designed our logo, but also brings sort of both a visual eye, but just a great um, great mind as a reader. And we'll discuss every book. And then when we feel like we want to do it, I basically go to you know, our president of our division and say, this is the book we want to buy. And we work it out with our financial manager to see like how can we afford to do this and what makes sense. And then if it's like an auction, I mean, you know, from the agent side, then all of the other stuff begins. But in terms of like, how do we know that we're going to go forward with a book? It's like we we know that we have a place for it and we're trusted to um, build the kind of list that's right for for Kokila. So obviously, you're not only devoted to publishing great books mm-hmm. by underrepresented creators, but you're also not just throwing spaghetti at the wall. You're clearly taking your time and publishing these books well, which includes promoting them. Yeah. Because surprise, books tend to sell better when they have marketing push. <laughs> so um, how do you make sure that each book on your list will shine in a crowded marketplace? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think part of it is that we're we're fortunate that um, when Gokula was launched or even before it was launched, when it was sort of in the works and people in-house, you know, are sort of getting um, buy-in from everyone, there was just tremendous support and enthusiasm for the mission and the approach that we were taking. And so I think, you know, from sales and marketing, our school and library team, our production team, and just like everyone was like, we want to do this and how do we, uh, how do we do it well? Now that's a great first step. And I, and I feel really grateful for that um, support. Of course, that doesn't mean that we have all of the knowledge and all of the skill to do all of the things well all of the time, but that's going to be the work that we, um, endeavor to do together. So I think one of the first things that I think about is how do I position this book in-house so that everyone here is understanding um, the layers that are there, the um, the complexities and, and, and opportunities that this book brings, um, That is that we're thinking about it in ways that are maybe a little bit outside of how we've talked about most books in publishing thus far, because we're at Kokila, we're generally trying to do things in a slightly different way, and we're happy to break the mold a little bit and um, just get everyone comfortable uh, experimenting and with that failing. Um, And then also recognizing sometimes that if we don't have a um, expertise in reaching a certain kind of audience, how do we bring in folks who do have that expertise? Because we have to recognize the ways in which we have um, blind spots and um, limitations to our knowledge. So it's kind of been a combination of sort of acknowledging all of those things 
together um, and also really working um, really closely with our creators because they will very often know their communities. And so really hearing from them about, you know, what are the pieces that your publisher often forgets that we should be keeping in mind to make sure that um, we hit both like the biggest audience, but also um, audiences that may not be huge, but are really important that I want to make sure I get to anyway. Right. So what's next for Kokola? Oh boy. I mean, we're just starting out, right? Our, our first books are just coming out. We're just launching in the world. And I feel like the thing we're going to keep trying to do is uh, make extraordinary books. Um, I hope that we will make a home for our, our authors where they experiment and maybe do things that they didn't think they could do anywhere else. And so they just try some cool new shit, you know? Um, <laughs> and so I think, I think, um, building a space to just do the most extraordinary work. Um, I hope that we'll keep growing. What's next is, in that way is like that we will just be getting better every day through the, through the mistakes that we make and the experiences that we're, that we're having now. Um, and then the big piece that I'm most excited about is I think for this first year, we've just been sort of hunkered down creating in-house our little team you know, kind of grinding away and then getting to know, you know, then sharing the work with Penguin at large and then slowly getting out to booksellers. And now I feel like readers will get our books. And what I can't wait for is the piece of community building that comes from sharing the work with actual readers because they're the, a piece of what we've always talked about in Kokila is how, how important community is. And now I feel like we get a chance to explore that piece of our identity because um, until now our community has been sort of our writers or our group and now it's much much broader and that feels amazing so I think hopefully what's next is that like yeah we become we become a part of the world <laughs> you know that inspires us well I think that's already happening thank you um can you help me answer some listener questions yeah, let's do it Okay. So I have to preface this one by saying <laughs> I am on the record as not being interested in parsing word count. Mm. It actually makes me want to pluck my eyes out. And I wrote this blog post long ago with everything I know about word count, which I will put a link to in the show notes. Unfortunately for me, I can't actually send this person to that post because in that post, I didn't mention anything about nonfiction or nonfiction adjacent picture book word counts. Okay. So with that preamble, a reader asks, hello, Namrata and Jennifer. Let's say someone was working on a fictionalized picture book about a little known period of history. What would you be looking for in terms of word count? Does the usual 600-ish still apply or do you have different guidelines for historical fiction? Thanks. I feel like I will probably frustrate this listener in a way that you do because I too don't really think about word count. I, I think... Um, in fact, even if you just quizzed me being like, how long is a middle grade novel? How many words? I just, I wouldn't know the answer because it's just not how my brain works. I think, um, I feel like usually a uh, work needs to be as long as the work needs to be, you know, and our job as editors is to help you create the most taught, effective, um, uh, streamlined or not, depending on, you know, whether the book requires it. Um, piece of writing. So, I mean, I guess uh, in general, like if it's not, if it's nonfiction or historical fiction or something that's kind of, yeah, got more sort of historical background you to get in there, 
sure, I think it could probably be longer. I would never be like, this is over 600 words and so I'm not going to read it. <laughs> I think if it, right. if it tells a story in the space that it needs, you do that and you think about it, you know, I think about it often more visually, like I'll see it on the page and be like, is that just too dense that we're going to lose the intended reader? And, you know, if it's a picture book for a slightly older reader, which is a thing that I hope will still exist, um, even though, you know, for a long time we were kind of moving away from that. But I, I love picture books still so much. My daughter is seven and we read them regularly. And I hope I hope we'll do that, you know, for a long, long time. Um, but you just kind of have to think about like who who is going to be spending time with this book and and how do you package it in a way that it will get through to them and delight them um you know as much as it can so i think sure if it needs to be longer let it be but i i don't think i could ever with authority tell you this is the word count where i would walk away right i agree and i would say further that i think you should think about the picture book in terms of the picture book text itself in terms of the audience you're going for. And then if you have additional amazing stories or whatever, put them in the back matter. Right. And there can be, you know, further explanation or more research that you've done or whatever that is for people who are super interested and teachers and people who want to put the thing into context right, more. Right. Yeah. Right. Because um, is it like, is this a part of the narrative or is this the educator's guide you know it, sometimes it's just a question of sort of figuring out where that um, piece of information that you wish to share really needs to go and who it's for and also like I mean I think it's always really interesting to think about is this form the best form for conveying this story so you might think like I want to write a picture book for some arbitrary reason and then you get down start doing it and you're like this is not really working because maybe it's not meant to be a picture book maybe it's in fact a much longer work, or in fact, you know, recently we were having a meeting at Kokila and we were thinking about a a middle grade novel. And as we started talking about it, I asked our team, said, is this supposed to be a novel? Because it feels like a lot of this is about seeing people who are excluded from spaces in those spaces. It feels very visual. I thought, like, what about a picture book? And then suddenly we realized like, oh yeah, this is a whole other thing. And then it took a totally different direction. And that was really fun. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that happens mm -hmm. a lot. So here's another question. This one is from an agent. Oh. From your perspective as an editor or publisher, um, editor slash publisher, yeah. what mistakes do agents make when sending submissions? How are agents helpful or not helpful? Um, what mistakes do agents make when they send a submission? I mean, I don't know that I can speak for what mistakes um all editors or publishers recognize. I mean, my one one that I get fairly often is that they just don't know my name. And that's a real bummer, you know, when it's a kind of a, it's like either they'll spell my name wrong or they'll call me Dear Tripathi or something like this. And I feel like, oh, it's just, a, it's such a, it's such a basic courtesy to be able to recognize who a person is and say, I, I took the time to learn um, your name, how to address you because your identity is is as important as anybody else's. So I feel like that's kind of a, it sounds like a small pet peeve, but to me it's actually a much bigger sign of sort of human respect that we should begin from. So I, that's that's one small one that I would say. Um, I don't think that's yeah. small, actually. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> it's um, pretty big. <laughs> and, uh, I think another would be, um, so because of the kinds of work that, that we do, um, you know, where we're talking about um, 
stories from the margins and you have a lot of creators from marginalized communities. Um, I think that's, I fully get that agents need to package a project, you know, that's kind of the job. But one of the things that I have some discomfort with is that I'll sometimes see um, submissions where it feels as though the author has been packaged. So they're packaging a person. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, I think I have some of that flares up for me when it's like the hashtag own voices thing again, like I think it's a own voice is a really valuable um, discussion and a necessary uh, development in our industry. But sometimes when you say like, this is a hashtag own voices creator or i don't know there's like this this way it's like when you call like a person diverse you're like what does that even mean um it's that kind of thing where i'll i'll see works where maybe the pitch itself is like so for example like if it's if it's a person um like a person of color then maybe it'll be like dripping in like i've seen orientalist language or even packaging and then you'll see like uh presentation of the author in a way that feels very set up for consumption by the white gaze and that that i think is probably a mistake and i and i wonder if authors are aware of it and doing it um, with their consent or whether sometimes as an author you feel that you must because it's your way in and and that's just a thing that i think we all need to kind of figure our way through because you shouldn't have to do that you know one of the things that i think is super super important is i it feels funny as an editor being like, here's what agents do well or poorly. Cause I think that like, we are all doing so many things well and poorly. And, you know, we could have an entire conversation on just like all the things I did poorly yesterday. You know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> but I think like, I'm very grateful for agents who can really help, um, one intervene when I am going in a direction that is not helpful to the author. So that might mean like, an editorial line that's not making sense. Usually an author and I will have that communication that's very clear and we can do that. But if our communication is breaking down in some way, I am so appreciative when an agent can sort of um, put in the necessary intervention to say, hey, they really need to hear from you. It feels like you've checked out or, hey, it seems like you're being really, you're going in this direction and, and they don't feel good about it or whatever it is. I think that's great. And also I love that agents can, help navigate some of those sticky situations so that I am able to have the most free and creative relationship with an author and illustrator, you know, that we can focus on that and some of the other stuff that can sometimes, um, that can be really hard. We don't have to carry the aura of just having had that tough conversation. That said, I feel like I have hard conversations with my authors and illustrators all the time. And I'm so grateful for that too. <laughs> but just the, just like running interfer interference sometimes that an agent does can be sort of really invaluable. Uh, so it's no secret that publishing has a diversity problem. I mean, this is part of why you started your imprint. Um, and it's not only with what is being published, but also the scarcity of people of color and um, marginalized people in all roles. Mm -hmm. That's editorial, sales, agents, booksellers, librarians. Can you talk from your perspective about why it's problematic and more importantly, how we can all fix it if we can't start our own companies to fix it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear why we would need, um, you know, multiple points of view um, at every level of publishing in order to make it really 
more representative. You know, just we have better, more robust conversations when um, folks acquiring the books, but then also developing the books and then also designing the books and then selling the books are really thinking about the ways in which we might be prioritizing certain readers over others or the kinds of um, harmful narratives we perpetuate without even thinking about them. I mean, I think all of that is a conversation we've had quite a bit and I, th- I think everyone kind of understands, right? Um, yeah, I think, I think so. so. I, I hope so. so. Oh, God. But in terms of like, what do we do about it? I mean, that's a great question. And I think, you know, a lot of different people are addressing it in so many ways. It's been really valuable to see organizations like POC and Pub and Latinx and Pub and We Need Diverse Books and, um, you know, things like when the Lee and Lowe um, survey comes out about how diverse our industry is for us to really look at the metrics. Like everyone is approaching these things from different angles and all of them are useful one of the things that I think is important for us to maybe consider is how um, we're all talking a lot about bringing in uh, new uh, staff from marginalized backgrounds or, you know, sort of a, a, a more diverse base of hires um, in the industry. But the retention piece is probably one that we need to get our brains around a little bit better. And I think, uh, a frustration that I sometimes have is that the language around that is sometimes framed like diverse. And it even feels weird calling people like diverse hires or diverse candidates because it's like, what does that mean? But, um, you know, like if you're non cis het white able, that kind of thing. Um, uh, it, the, when the retention conversation happens, it's often like, hey, retain yourselves, <laughs> like learn how to retain yourselves in a way. You know, it might mean, mm-hmm. um, like build these skills that you might not have had access to before. And that's fine, but that's a thing that's incumbent on the employee. And then it might be like, find yourself a mentor who can help you. And then it's sort of like, okay, if you're a young person of color or you're gay and you want to find someone who shares your identity, then it's again on someone from this community to help you or, you know, and rather than us thinking about what are the ways in which we are defaulting to systems and thinkings that exclude certain employees from thriving in this environment and how is it that i'm so um indoctrinated in those ways of thinking that i can't even question you know like the things that we call um professionalism or you know uh standards of excellence are really maybe like white standards or things like this and so i think having more uh sophisticated and honest conversations about the ways in which all of us who are really, really invested in doing the work and well-intentioned, the ways that we are perpetuating an unwelcoming environment for a, a actually a more diverse um, uh, publishing uh, industry, uh, that'll probably make the biggest difference. And I don't know that we're there yet because that's a super uncomfortable conversation to have. I mean, no one wants to sit in the ways with in which that we're failing, but I think that's what it's going to take. Well, and also, I mean, bluntly, I think that as long as... New- New York City is where most of publishing happens. It's a mm-hmm. problem because I don't think that people can afford totally. to live there unless they have a, you yeah. know, robust safety net yeah. and privilege yeah. and all that stuff. I mean, so. there's a lot of good things happening in that where it's like, you know, some years ago we asked like, what about like student loan, like cancellation if you worked at this company and it was kind of crickets. And then a couple of years later, like Penguin Random House did do this thing where they, if you work for a certain number of years, they will help you pay off, you know, a certain amount of your student loan debt. And that was amazing. And I'm like, okay, though we just, that needs to just be sort of standard. We need a lot more of those kinds of things because there are so many 
um, barriers first to entry, but then to staying. Okay. That's sort of depressing. So let's move (laughs) on to books, shall we? (laughs) What book not published Mm. by you have you read recently and adored? I always get in a panic when this question gets asked because then I'm like, do I know how to read? What is book? Uh, And I'm having that moment. But, um, you know, uh, okay, so one book that I read, adored, and bought multiple copies of to give to other people, which I feel like is kind of significant. It's not a children's book. Is that allowed? Yeah. Okay. Yes, of course. So it's a um, graphic novel memoir called Good Talk by Mira Jacob, and it's published by One I World. literally, I just Did you just buy this. it? Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's Yesterday. so good. Okay, go on. Finish go reading on. it, and then let's talk again. <laughs> um, that That's one. I mean, one, I just love reading graphic novel uh, memoirs. It's just sort of my, it's my favorite genre to read in my sort of non-publishing life, just as a human person. Um, there's just such a, an intimacy that comes from that kind of storytelling, sort of the, the combination of visual and, and someone sharing their most sort of vulnerable self with you. And this book is just, it's so funny and it's so um, brutal at the same time. It really, it, it's basically, uh, it's a graphic memoir in conversations, I think is how it's framed. And it's basically a series of conversations that the author has with her son, her spouse, uh, her in-laws, her friends, really around uh, how we discuss race in post 9-11 America. And um, it just resonated really deeply. You know, I, I'm, uh, my husband is, is white, I'm Indian, like the author, and we have a lot of conversations around race with our own kid, our own in-laws, our, you know, our own friends. And it just, it was like, it was sort of eerie reading the book because it was like, why are you (laughs) in my brain? But also it was so fun and funny. So I had to buy it for um, just a bunch of my girlfriends. So I I would recommend this book to a lot of people. Yeah. Excellent. And of course I will put a link to it and that is good talk um, in case I was talking over the title. when Mm -hmm. I I got so excited when you mentioned it because I literally bought it yesterday. Um, So I always ask all my guests this question, which is what are you obsessed with at the moment? It does not have to be bookish, although it can be. I will go first so that you can think about it. Um, at the moment, so I actually, if I were really putting my obsession, um, I'm. it happens that I'm, I've been at the doctor all oh. the time in the past few weeks because I'm super anemic. So I've been spending a ton of time looking up things about yeah. iron and thinking about like kale and cast iron skillets so that's actually kind of my obsession but that's not very fun so actually i'm going to talk about okay but when you have if you have like a quick cheat sheet on iron please send that over here because uh similarly anemic (laughs) so yes yeah terrible um so the tv show is discovery of witches Mm. it's based on some grown-up books which i did not read but um i don't need to read it now because it's on tv Uh, it's set in Oxford, so there's lots of gratuitous library scenes, which I'm totally excited about and love. Um, beautiful old libraries. And it's about a witch who does not know how to use her power. She's in denial. She doesn't want to be a witch. She just wants to be an academic. But um, she meets a very sexy vampire oh. who is super into her. And... You know, let's just say it goes yeah. from there. But, Sounds um, relatable. But it <laughs> is, it's very uh, delicious yeah. and silly and um, 
and I've been very binging it. Where do you watch um, it? I watch it on television. I'm oh. a weird person that has television. I believe it's on AMC, but I think it also streams. I've seen people who are streaming it, I think on Shudder or something. And maybe it's on Hulu. I don't know. Um, but Discovery of Witches, if you yeah. like witches and vamps and stuff like that, it is not like, um, because it's set in now time, not in like Victorian time or whatever. So they're not in velvet coats right. or anything. That but. sounds awesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, I happen to like nerds and vampires. So putting them together is good for me. That's awesome. I, I mean, this is a totally weird and not publishing aside, but um, I, my husband is not a vampire, but he is a super nerd. But I think on one of our first dates, I told him that he looked like a vampire crossed with a werewolf. Well, I don't know why. I, I think I didn't know that he was going to become my husband. I had not planned on that. But somehow he stuck around. And so I think I too must like nerds and vampires. Were you complimenting no, him? No, I was or? just making an observation. No, I, I'm not good at, yeah, no. I'm not good at interactions with humans, I think, is what we're learning. <laughs> so, Namrata, what is your obsession? Oh, um, okay. So, this is, since you said it doesn't have to be bookish, it's actually not even um, product or art-ish, going back to my my uh, interaction with humans being a little bit off right now, the thing I'm thinking so much about and kind of obsessed with is um, is solitude and uh, like my relationship with it. And so I am uh, in a place right now where I crave it deeply and I'm trying to make space for it in my life. And it feels really weird to say because it's not like a sad it's not some sort of sad, like I need to go and like lick my wounds in a corner kind of thing. It's it's really just like I miss um, I miss the company of my mind, and I really think a lot about now about how like I remember being in college and my freshman year, I would do this thing where I would um, have a thought and then I had to go to class or something and I'd be like, oh okay, I can't think about this right now, so I'm going to file it in this corner of my brain and then later today I can take it out and I can look at it and just think about this thought because I'm so excited and I would save little things like this all day in my brain and then I would go back to my dorm room and I would sit on my bed and just like kind of stare out into space and pull out the things that I squirreled away for you know further examination. And then, of course, my roommate would come back and I'd just be sitting looking into space and she'd be like, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm thinking, don't you do that? And it was now our dear friends. But initially she was like, I have the roommate from hell. Who does this? But I miss I miss that. I miss the ability to I think it's about pausing and slowing down and like daydreaming. Uh, and that's where sort of big ideas come from. And so I, I think I'm missing both. Uh, a quiet and also that relationship with myself and my mind. So yeah, the thing I am pretty obsessed with is um, solitude. <laughs> cool. Well, I hope you Thank find you. it. Thank you so much for joining me. This was terrific. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much again to my guest Namrata for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm going to link to all the books we chatted about today, as well as lots of other resources in the show notes on my website. That's at jenniferloughran.com slash literaticast. Also, the Literaticast has a Patreon. Throw in a buck and help me help keep making this podcast. That's at patreon.com slash literaticat. 
Another tangible way you can help if you love the podcast is to rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help more people find the show. If you hate it, though, please don't review it. Just go about your business and have a wonderful time not listening. Anyway, that's about it for this week. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.